Welcome to the Questionably Qualified Game of Thrones podcast. I'm John Truxus. And I'm Ryan Maddock. And we had quite an episode in terms of theories and in terms of magical powers. Um, So before we get to a long and terribly dorky conversation uh, about Bran Stark, let's go ahead and cover some of the other stuff that went went down. Uh, We had Littlefinger teleport his way to the wall. Uh, last, Last week he was seen in the Vale, and... Getting from there to the wall where Sansa is, is it's quite a journey. It he he appeared to have done it in about a week um, through some pretty treacherous terrain too. In you know, terms of both distance um, and the amount of people that would want to kill him in it. Right. Yeah. the The path the King's Road, at least, maybe he rode off the road, but that would suggest it would take him more time. Uh, runs directly between Winterfell and the Dreadfort. Yes. So you have the Boltons' new house and their old house. Uh, you would think that they might have some guys watching the road in that area. Um, but I did really enjoy the interaction with Sansa there because I think Littlefinger came in thinking, all right, you know, I, I've bided my time and now I get to come here and be the hero and I have an army with me and everything. So I, I thought that was awesome. I think that, you know, for the second episode in a row, we're watching Sansa kind of like become autonomous and acting like her own person. I thought it was a pretty cool burn um, she had on Littlefinger. I like that it was your burn of the week. Um, I don't know why Littlefinger didn't have anyone with a sword with him. Uh, it seemed unusual. Rem- he really just rides on his own. I remind people, in the first book, King Robert makes reference to the fact that the North is as big as the rest of the Seven Kingdoms combined. So if that can kind of put into context of how far Littlefinger basically just went by himself in three days without anyone to protect him. Yes, and this is during a a not particularly safe time in the North either, given what's been going on. No, there's a bunch of conflicting armies kind of roaming around. Uh, I, I have no explanation. Right. Uh, but yes, yeah, Sansa shutting him down is pretty fantastic. Uh, I, I do. The Knights of the Vale obviously would have been helpful to their cause, given that they're desperately short on armed troops right now. But I think that uh, her forcing him to, first of all, acknowledge what he actually did, as opposed to letting him off on his apology, uh, was pretty fantastic. And then throwing the throwing the threat to Brienne was pretty great, also. Yeah, I'm surprised, well not surprised that you turn on the Knights of the Vale, I mean the Knights of the Vale are going to get involved somehow I thought I was going to like oh god, I thought I was going to be clairvoyant and Sansa was going to kill Littlefinger a week after I predicted it that would have been great be, oh my god, I was going to feel so good about myself um, I still think that you know, she might kill him um, because all that she knows right now is that Littlefinger gave her over to, you know a torturous rapist beast um which right. i mean which is bad but she's still which is really fucking bad but and i thought i thought she described it perfectly when she said you know you, you rescued me from monsters who killed my family and you delivered me to monsters who killed my family yeah exactly i think that that and when she realizes that Littlefinger actually is the reason that ned's dead or at least you know not the sole reason but a necessary link in the chain I think she's going to kill him. I, I will say one thing that Sansa did in the last episode. Um, you know, riding for, or having someone ride for River Run to get the Blackfish, who were finally going to get to like see in action. Um, 
that's a good idea. Sending away her only actual, like, purely, like, diehard supporter. I know her and John are on the same team, but, like, it's not the same as having, you know, your team member, and she already is, like, proactively lying to John, as we saw. Like, I don't know why she sent Brianna away. It seems like a bold strategy. I thought both of those moves were interesting, and I agree I was a little surprised that she sent Brienne. Uh, just it's, it's not like Brienne carries more weight than another messenger from her, I don't think. And the lie to John was interesting. Now, do you think the only reason she lied about it was that she didn't want to acknowledge that she turned away the Knights of the Veil? Or, because I don't think John knows anything more about Littlefinger than anyone else, right? No. Um, I don't think that he does. I think that Sansa... You know, she was trained in scheming by Littlefinger. I think that there, in her mind, you know, maybe there wasn't, you know, John didn't need to know it. I dealt with that. Um, and now I have these additional data points and I can call on the Knights of the Vale, maybe. And we can do this other strategy, but, you know, I know these other things. I think that she's just scheming. I don't know that she's, you know, actively working, like, she's not actively working to undermine John or, like, working against their aims. I think she's just kind of scheming a little bit in sort of keeping the information close to her chest. Um, but it's also possible John would have been like, what the hell do you mean you just turned away like the biggest army in the Seven Kingdoms? Right. Um, so. Um, so, so yeah, I think that there there's uh, two interesting questions that come out of that. One is, what do you think Littlefinger does next? Because I don't picture him going back to the Knights of the Vale and saying, sorry guys, I was wrong, Sansa doesn't need us, let's just go home. Do you think that he rides on Winterfell anyway? Do you think he just kind of waits to see how it shakes out? He did seem genuinely upset by his interaction with Sansa, as much as Littlefinger can be. I mean, he does have kind of like a weird pedophilia thing going on for Sansa. Um, everyone remember that, like, people always say that Sansa looks a lot like her mother and Littlefinger, like, you know, one of his main motivations, at least originally in the series, and kind of one of his main motivations in wanting to be as powerful as he wants to be was, like, the fact that he was so desperately in love with Cat, uh, Catelyn Stark, then Catelyn Tully, but, like, because he was basically, like, a, a little wimp and his family had no money or no lands, he, he had no ability to do... He, you know, he couldn't marry a Tully, even though, like, she supposedly liked him, too. So that's one of the reasons that he rose. So I, I think that if Littlefinger does have any blind spot... It's for Sansa, and, like, I think in his weird, even though he, you know, was scheming to have her married, I think in, like, some weird realm, Littlefinger, you know, always wanted to, like, end up, like, marrying her, or, like, having some weird situation with her. I think so, too. I think so, too. And, and right, he, he was desperately in love with Kat, who, you know, kind of friend-zoned him, and I, I think that that, like you said, has been driving him all this time. It's something that is still in the back of his mind somewhere, and probably the, the one sort of point of emotional weakness that he might have for a guy who's pretty much, you know, emotionless. Mm -hmm. So, so speaking of the strategy now that the Knights of the Vale are not going to join their forces, uh, they could really use Littlefinger's teleportation powers here because I, I don't disagree with the strategy they're pursuing. I think it's smart to rally the smaller houses and then work your way up to the larger ones. But at the same time, that's going to take a lot of time. The the North just isn't big in the series. I don't know. I have no explanation. 
and um, and they know that Rickon is currently in the possession of a guy who likes to flay people, and I would think that there would be a bit more urgency to their to their aims. You you'd think that they'd be concerned about the fact that Rickon's being flayed. The Rickon is likely going to be flayed soon. I still think that the Umbers are not on the side of um, the Boltons. I'm, I, the Manderleys keep getting mentioned. I'm convinced that we're going to get a Wyman Manderley sighting this season. Yeah, I have I a feeling so. we're going to get the cool. You know, we're going to learn the backstory of the Manderleys and we're going to get the really cool speech. And um, I really hope that the people that haven't read the books and the show watchers get to observe that in all of its awesomeness. That would be um, amazing. And they do have Davos there that they could send, which would fit the book, the book proceedings as well. Um, so I, I agree that would be fantastic if that happened. I agree on the Umbers. I don't think... If they are allied with the Boltons, they are certainly not firmly allied with the Boltons, um, and I think that they would be very easy to sway over to the other side if you were to give them a convincing leader. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and I don't think they're allied with the Boltons. I mean, the great John Umber, their lord, or, you know, this guy's supposed father, or not supposed father, this guy's father, and, like, someone that they all supposedly loved a lot, um, he was at the Red Wedding, and he's still in chains with the phrase. Right. So. Okay, um, so I think that's enough of the North. We'll, we'll move down a little further uh, to the Iron Islands, where we got to see a king's moot. <laughs> there, there. Wouldn't it be cool if uh, we were as good at selecting leaders as the Ironmen are, apparently? I mean, they came to a consensus in 10 seconds. It was, it was incredibly quick. impressive. Yes, but, it was, and, and I was a little curious as to why Yara never even got a rebuttal. Um, it seems like you might be able to win the King's Mood just by coming in latest and mocking the people who went before you. Um, I mean, that's not a bad strategy, but... Yeah, wh- or why, yeah why didn't Yara just cut him off? Because she was about to get to critical cheering mass, which, as we learned, <laughs> is the, the Iron Islands' way of electing leaders. You have to get to a certain decibel level. And then you win, um, but then you're on cutter off. You know right. why, why? Why wasn't there a new cutoff? But as we kind of talked about, you know, may, maybe that maybe the reason that it's so easy to get elected in the Iron Islands is because your first act of king is to be drowned, and then no one gives you any CPR or anything. I mean, what's what's the success rate of someone coming back from that? I would, I would love to know. I don't think it's high. I, I kept expecting one of them to rush forward and start, you know, delivering some, some chest compressions. But I guess they just got lucky and he managed to cough up, <laughs> cough up the water on his own. Because they do some of the drowning in the book, but I feel like they didn't just, like, drag people out of the water and then be like, well, I hope you're alive. You did just drown <laughs> after all. Like, I feel like they kind of punched them or, like, you know. Right. They do have the drowning in the book, which is, like, a super fucked up religion. Sure um, but I don't think that they just drag the people out. And then, I mean, how few people were at that king's crowning? Like, how right, many people? So I was trying to remember in the books if, if everyone was invited, or if it was only sailing men, or if it was only captains of ships. And I think it might have been captains of ships. Um, okay. The question I have then is, how was Euron able to win the king's moot if enough people snuck out that they were able to take all of the boats. I mean, the Iron Islands are a reaving, seaworthy people, and their boat-to-human ratio is, you know, 
it's pretty heavy on the boat side for anyone in right. Westeros. I mean, and they took like 50, 60, like they took a lot of fucking boats, right? There were a lot of ships out there in the water. I, I had one friend uh, who pointed out that perhaps they took only the best ships and the other ships were anchored out there while the King's Moot was happening. Okay. Which makes me did... feel a little better. He did say they took our best ships. Right. And I, I watched the episode twice because I went over to a friend's house yesterday uh, to pick, to grab a video game, and they were and they started the episode, and I was like, "Well, um, right." As much as I make fun of uh, certain things, so and the second time through, I caught the our best ships. So I was like, "Okay, maybe it's not as much," but I do think you know for the book readers, there's this and this. This clearly isn't going to happen now because of like the timeline in King's Landing and the show. Like, very, I'm very grateful for this. They just expedited a bunch of King's Landing stuff. But basically, Cersei builds a fleet in King's Landing, puts this freaking idiot in charge of it, and then the dude just like pieces out with like a bunch of ships and no one, like the entire King's Landing fleet, and no one's sure what it's going to do. And I have a feeling that Theon and Yara's fleet is going to end up playing about, like, whatever the role of that fleet was. I think that's what Theon and Yara's fleet's going to play. So I I think that they have enough ships to do something. But, like, that would mean that so many people snuck off the island unnoticed. Yes, and that's kind of the problem, is either enough people snuck off that I don't understand how Euron won, because it would seem that they were voting against Euron, or not enough people snuck off to man enough ships to be impactful. Yeah. And not only, like, how did Euron win, but, like, how did that many people sneak off an island unnoticed and get on it? I don't know. Maybe it's just Maybe it's just a few ships, and the show's just gonna, like, fudge the effectiveness of, like, five ships. Because we did only could see be. two boats row out there. Yeah, that could be. And, and the other question uh, I have, then, which the show... We'll get to really fudging with time later, but the show is comfortable fudging with time travel distances, and apparently they're going to fudge with the time it takes to build thousands of ships, because the Iron Islands are not known for their lumber supply, and Euron would like to create a vast fleet, which I think for them would mean reaving, cutting down the lumber, transporting the lumber, and then usually the bottleneck is not having enough shipyards to create more than a couple ships at a time. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're talking about you know, like a year and a half plan, which is fine. that's super ambitious. That's all. That's also. I mean, you're being really aggressive as to how yes. quick they can build. I think he said a thousand ships. He did. Um, that's like takes a lot of fucking time. I mean, we'd have a hard time. You know, like with current technology, I feel like that many that many people would have a hard time building a thousand wooden ships in a year. Even yeah, with it's difficult. Technology. It's difficult to just have enough space and enough. Like, it's, you can't simultaneously produce that many with that many people. No. Even if like we like, yeah, even if we like assume that shipyards aren't a constraint, I feel like it would be hard to do. But I, I feel like it's going to happen in like a month, and then they're going to be in Marine two days later. I kind of um, think so too, and this is good because we are certainly questionably qualified to discuss the time it takes to produce naval ships. <laughs> That is true. Um, I specialize in maritime law. So, yes. Um, I, yes. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so uh, <laughs> there was a nice sneak job by Yara and Theon. It'll be interesting to see what they decide to go do. 
we also stopped in Bravos and saw Arya. I was a little bored with that scene, and I also I feel like she's back backtracked a bit in her training. She's now getting beaten up again while while having her sight. Um, so maybe it's like a Luke Skywalker situation where she's she's better if she just trusts her instincts or something. But I, I just watched her block a girl's blow last time when she was blind, and now she's getting beat up again. Yeah, and she, and I mean, and she can't even lay a punch. Um, the one thing that was, I feel like maybe I caught something the second time through the episode. They asked Arya like the guy asked Arya, like, either you want to be with us or not, like, you need to make your decision, and she, she said, I have. And, um, that was, that was I thought after... that was interesting. What do you think she meant by that? You know, and that was after she saw the play of exactly what happened in King's Landing, which of course was, like, planned by Jake and Agar, you have yeah. to assume. I think she's like, oh, that's right. That's, like, I came here to flee this and to, like, kind of learn how to kill people, and I wanted to learn how to kill people um, so I could fuck on all these people that, like, did my family wrong in the past. I feel like she might have meant, like, I have made my decision, like, I'm out. That's kind of what I thought, too, was, like, I made my decision to continue being my own person in addition to this training, and I am going to not lose myself. I don't feel like the Faceless Men are going to take very kindly to that. I agree. Um... Also, just noteworthy in that scene, Cat uh, felt the the exposed breasts were quite gratuitous. Um, it was it, they were obscenely gratuitous. Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm I'm married, so I'm not gonna comment outside of that. But they, they it was it was completely fucking unnecessary. But I, then I feel they like it's like, important to point out sometimes that she is occasionally correct about the the gratuitousness. But then it was almost like the show runners were telling us to go fuck ourselves because right after people were making comment like everyone was saying like well that those were gratuitous breasts it was like and here's a dick in your face yes that was that was yeah unfortunate as well a completely unnecessary dick in your face like how do you feel to be that actor like you're gonna kind of pretend to be on stage acting as joffrey for like 30 seconds but the main thing we want to do is just like stare up at you with a camera from like between your legs and just film your cock Yes, and um, have you like, talk about the words on it also. That was that guy's big break. Like, think about yeah. that. Yeah. All right, um, we'll move on, <laughs> on that note to uh, the probably the, the most meaningless scene, uh, which was outside of Vaya's Dothrak, where Danny is, is waiting to make her next move, I guess. And no. she got the talk to Jorah and Dario. Jorah reveals his grayscale. He also reveals his love for Danny. And then I think Danny sends him on a mission that once I step back, I found very insulting. Yeah. <laughs> go go do this thing that no one knows how to do. Right. You know how no one's cured this yet? That's your mission now, Jorah. I, I think Grayscale... Ha- There's something about Grayscale in this series. Um, I don't know exactly what it is. There's a couple, like... Another character in the book that doesn't appear like it's gonna, he's going to show up in the show has grayscale. Um, they've made like some allusions to it. One wildling freaks out when she sees that Shirin, you know, who's alive in the book, 
but Stannis decided to burn alive like a reasonable person in the show who was recovering from grayscale. Like, in the book, a wildling woman's like, holy shit, that girl's evil. Like, she needs to be killed yes. immediately. Um, so I feel like there's something. I don't know what grayscale's going to have to do with it, but I feel like there's something. But It does, it does kind of seem that way. But she did basically just tell Jorah to go pe- become the best, like, healing maester on the planet. Right. Like, like you are correct, Jorah. I have no use for you in your grayscale, so go cure that. It's going to be funny when he cures it and she still won't sleep with him. It will be. It will be. But it's hard, I mean, it's hard to blame her. Look at Dario. He's just, I think, in all in all ways, superior. He, he I mean, he's a good-looking dude. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, and he's and he's never tried to kill her. You know, I mean, that was, or, or informed on her. That was what Jorah was doing at the beginning. I mean, obviously his alliances have changed, but still. Yes. All right, so we went from there to Marine. Where oh actually before we before we leave, um, what do you think Danny's next move is? Is she just going to head back to Marine? I I would like her to find her dragon at some point, but the dragon's gonna. I think she's gonna head back to Marine and find her dragon. I feel like they're gonna do it all in one episode. She's gonna like be in Marine and then Drogon's gonna show up, and it's just gonna, you know, it'll be a roll of the dice. What episode that is? I hope it's soon. But it's possible that she'll, like, you know, wax poetic at some people for another episode until we get there. Yeah, that definitely could be interesting. I, would like to... I was looking at the map. I don't believe that Yunkai asked for, um, or the other free city that I'm forgetting about, apparently, uh, Volantis, are on the way to Marine. So I think that she could make headway for Marine and then find out from Tyrion what's going on. Because geography has played a super huge role in the <laughs> way that the, in the way that the plot of the show has developed. Fair point. Um, she could end up in Dorne, and that she could end up in Dorne <laughs> on her way to Marine for all this That's fucking true. shows. <laughs> kidding itself. She'll get the sand snakes first and add them to her army before she comes <laughs> comes back to Marine. Um, okay, so so in Marine, uh, Tyrion's there. They talk some more about what they're going to do next. Uh, I guess the interesting takeaway is that they're engaging with the Red the Red Priestess, um, who I didn't realize until later was the same one that he saw talking in, I want to say, Volantis when Jorah kidnapped him. I don't know if that's important, but I did think it was a good strategy, unsurprisingly, from Tyrion, who seems to understand the common folk better than any other ruling body. Um and so it seemed to me like that was a smart move to work through a religion, not giving them weapons like another friend of ours, another Lannister, um, but using them to to kind of get the get the public on their side. I mean, I think it makes perfect sense for you know what Tyrion's point, uh, for what Tyrion's aims are. We'll see how it works. Um, he's going to turn, you know, to if he can turn the city of Marine into a bunch of religious fanatics that support Danny. that's, I mean, yeah, that's going to be effective. There's one particular thing about the scene that kind of has nothing to do with the show that I just wanted to point out. Um, for anyone that didn't catch it, because I didn't on my first show watch, um, but on the second time when I was with my friends yesterday, I did. Look at Varys' face when the priestess is telling him about the night he got stabbed, because it's it, it needs to become a meme. It's the perfect what the fuck face. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. It, he's just, I, I can't ex- describe it. I'm like, I want to figure out a way to describe it, but I just like keep making the face as I'm sitting here alone in my guest bedroom, <laughs> recording this on a microphone. Um, when but, she, yeah. When she reveals that she knows exactly what went down with his castration, he is, yeah, that is a, 
a picture perfect what the f face yeah and like by the end of it he kind of seems out of looking side like Jesus, bro, like, I get it. Like, calm the <laughs> fuck down. Like, okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like let's, let's not talk about this that much, all right? Yeah, like, I'm done trying to intimidate you. My bad. I didn't Proved get your point. what level we were on. So one, one question of curiosity that came up after the episode when I was discussing it with friends was, um, which, I mean, thank the Lord that we have so many friends who are willing to discuss Game of Thrones this way, but was the Red Priestess... Clearly she was accurate in her description, because otherwise it wouldn't have unsettled Varys that way. Yeah. That, 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 that's in line with the book, too. From what she was saying, I got the impression that it was, and I can't remember from the book, that it was a cheap sorcerer who um, was burning his man bits uh, as like a good luck type thing. And someone mentioned that maybe it, it meant that it was a Red Priestess connection. And that that was the faith that did it to, to Varys, and that explained why he was so openly hostile. But I th- I felt that Varys was just openly hostile towards religious zealotry of all kinds. He's openly hostile towards religious zealotry and magic in general. Um, okay, that's what because, I thought. And, and because she didn't the sorcerer seem to be... burned his, cut his dick off and threw it on yeah. and threw it on a brazier. Which, in fairness, I would not be happy with them either. Yeah, I mean, I like the Harry Potter books, but if someone did that to me, I would change my opinion on it. Yeah, yeah, it's time. (laughs) (laughs) No more, guys. (laughs) All right, um, so let's let's get out into you know the big the big happenings of this this week, and it's not big happenings in terms of changing the immediate conditions, but dear lord, does it have potential implications for everything else in this universe? Um, So we go beyond the wall, and Bran is warging as he is in every episode this season and last season, I think. Um, I did have a moment, like, as soon as they cut to him and Bran had his war guys on, I, I kind of smacked myself in the head, like, oh, goody, I get to, you know, watch him lay still again for another episode. Um, but that did not exactly happen. No. Uh, in fact, it no. was quite different. Um, and so I think that the, the first warg scene he observes the children of the forest inserting what I think was obsidian into the chest of what looked to be a regular man. That That's what appeared to... I mean, it appeared that there was some kind of magical ritual going on. Like, I don't just think that if, you know, Sam or someone else just stabbed a human with an obsidian dagger, we get another. There was some kind of ritual going on, but... Yeah, they created the others. Um, yes. And in, or at and least in a other response, who may have created others. And in direct response to the threat of humankind. Yeah, which is some. The show hasn't hit on that as much. That that is in the books a little bit more. The fact that the humans showed up, the chill like Westeros originally was like a mostly children of the forest, and then yes, um, it was all it was inhabited men. entirely by children of the forest and giants. And yeah. one day the first men started coming over from Essos when it was connected by a land bridge, and set about doing what men tend to do, which is cutting down trees and building settlements and reacting hostily towards weird things that they see in the woods. And after quite a lot of bloodshed, they, and after some pretty impressive sorcery too, the children of the forest are supposedly the ones that broke the land bridge um, using a giant tidal wave. Well, it's not after the Andals came over because the first men worshipped the same gods as the children of the forest. 
the first men did, but they didn't at first. So it was still during oh, the. Oh, that's right. No, no, no. That's right. That's right. They made a truce. Right, and so and they the made the pact. They decided, you know, we can't do this forever. And the first men said, "All right, you guys can have the forests, and we'll stop cutting down your weirwood trees." Are bad. Right now, the interesting part of that scene to me is that if the children of the forest created the others in response to the human threat, then it would have had to happen before the pact, I think. But as far as we know, the others didn't show up in Westeros until the Long Night, which is some time after the pact. It's possible that the Children of the Forest made those and then kind of realized what they had done. Because, I mean, it seems like there's this land, if you look at any of the maps in the books, there's the land of always winter, which is, you know, the north of the north, you know, the north of beyond the wall, where, like, even the wildlings are like, yeah, we don't know what the fuck is up there. Um, it's super cold. <laughs> like, right. even the wildlings are like, no, that's way too cold for Even us. in the middle of summer. Yeah, so that, that's a good point, though. I mean, I feel, because I, I, I had an idea as you were saying that, that maybe the children of the forest helped, you know, the building of the wall, and that was part of the pact, but you're right. The pact does predate, the pact predates the wall. And the, the pact, long night. Yeah, and, and the long night. So there must have, yeah, so the, the others must have just been kind of hanging out. Maybe they just ran up to the land of always winter, or... Um, they had only made like three or four and the children of the forest ha- thought they had them contained. And then like when they went back, they were like, oh my God, they have all these zombies. That was like unforeseen. Um, so you think maybe they, they created them, never actually used them and then maybe lost control of them. Or maybe they created them, used them originally before the long night, before the wall, like these, like two or three of them. You know, it's like some small number. Mm-hmm. And then, like, they're like, holy shit, our bad. Like, we did not mean to create these ice demons and their zombie armies. And, like, they get, like, on a very small scale, they get defeated, but one or two escape. And that's, like, when the children of the forest and, and the first men are like, okay, like, this needs to end because we almost just ended existence. But then, you know, the other, the other, the few others that escaped, or the one other, the Night King, will just assume. Um,. Yes, and that that would be my one my one thought is that it might have been the Night's King who really mobilized the others because the pact was signed prior to the Night's King and prior to the Long Night. Yes. And so it's possible that the others were there in sort of a deactivated mode. And the Night's King was the one to mobilize them after becoming an other himself. Which still, like... like are, Do the others have any shades of gray? And when I say that, uh, for people that aren't just fucking stupid nerds, I mean, you know, the, the idea of black, black and white characters where, you know, think Star Wars. Um, you got the light side and the dark side. Um, think Tolkien is probably actually the best example. Very blatant. Um, they will always act in accordance with the good or bad that they serve. Yeah, like Tolkien didn't write about any orcs having crisis of consciences. 
Um, like they sucked, <laughs> yeah. and those that killed them were good. Um, men were like the only characters that were allowed to be like you know have some great tendencies, but there still had to be something that pulled. You know, because the Night's King was originally a Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if the book has gotten, or if the show's gotten there, but whatever. Um, There there has to be something there, right? I think so. He wouldn't just decide to become an ice demon. Right, and it it wouldn't seem to be necessary to make this leader of the White Walkers the Night's King if there wasn't any meaning to his origin story. Oh my god, it's almost kind of... If that's true, and there's something that drew him in there, it's almost a parable to Mance Raider. How so? Or a parallel to Mance Raider. Because Mance Raider was a, a member of the Night's Watch, came down off the wall to join a cause that he actually believed in, mm-hmm. um, which was the Wildlings, and united them, and created and turned them into a force that they never were before. That's very true. That's very true. Okay, so but that would so but that have... that would mean that the others have to have some motivation beyond being ice demons, right? Besides just slaughtering every human, um, as they describe in the books, you know, smelling hot blood and going to kill it. Yes. Um, okay, so we we have the creation scene there, and shortly after Bran, you know, I guess while Bloodraven is napping, which I didn't realize Bloodraven did, Bran decides to work on his own. And finds himself surrounded by the army of the undead. Why didn't he just let go of the tree? Like, does that not something... Is it like you're locked into a warg for, like, five minutes? It was like, if I warg somewhere and I saw an army of the undead, I'd <laughs> done. Like, just let go of the tree. I, I, sure like, as, I sure as hell wouldn't be walking through the middle of them like he did. Even before no. I saw the White Walkers, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to stay over here. But for sure, by the time you saw the White Walkers, you'd be like, okay, my bad. Right. My bad. Right. And instead, he gets grabbed by the Night's King, um, which leaves a mark on his arm. Uh, Yes. He did pull a nice teenager move there and try to say, uh, I don't know if he touched me, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, Well, your arm's blue now, Bran. So I'm pretty sure he did. Uh, (laughs) So Bran gets marked by the Night's King. From a book standpoint, we have no idea what that means. This is not like something that show watchers are in the dark on, but we have inside intel. This marking is totally new, as far as I know. Yeah, no, I, I got nothing. No one's been marked that I know of. Um, and it allows the Night's King to not only locate them under the tree, but also enter, despite the magic that's been worked on that area. Um, you know, we saw when they first went in there how the whites just kind of exploded as soon as they entered and that was due to the spells the children of the forest had put there but the because of the mark the white walkers are now able to enter the information white walkers... that yeah, go ahead. i was gonna say information that um bran and blood raven react to by deciding to time travel some more yes yes because that's the best the opportune time for that yep uh, so while they're time traveling again, the Night's King shows up uh, in real life, and they approach. The Children of the Forest set a fairly weak ring of fire out in front of the door. Yeah, which not really effective. The White Walkers are able to pass, but the Whites, for some reason, are scared enough to go around. And Anyway, uh, they, they enter. Mira manages to take down another White Walker, which... From that scene and the scene at Hardhome, I think there are three left. Now, there isn't 
there doesn't seem to be as stark of a division in the books between the White Walkers and the undead. But Mm -hmm. based on what I've seen in the show, I'm wondering if the White Walkers are a finite resource, and that's why they need to take Craster's babies and turn them into White Walkers from that age. I I imagine that they are um, a finite resource. I don't think there's only three or four left, um, whatever's there. I mean, Craster had how many daughters? Many. Yeah, just, I mean, math. Um, Yes. So, I mean, some of them might be super young, but you gotta imagine, I mean... The wildlings were always a ruthless people, and I gotta imagine that they could always find one person among the wildlings that was willing to trade his sons for some wealth. And they probably also, you know, I, I have a feeling that that's not there's not just four, but I could be wrong because they do seem to be kind of all they there's some there's a couple ones we keep always seeing, so I could be wrong on that. The right. book does not give that impression at all, though, does it? No, no, definitely not. Um, it seems like there are the White Walkers who are just kind of the the ones that are able to process information versus the raised dead who are the mindless horde. Yeah, it seems almost like the White Walkers are like knights yeah. in the Westerosi army, and like they have and like they have a big army, so they have a decent number of them. Is kind of the right. feeling that I got from the books, but yeah, I think the show has not given that impression yet. Right. Um, so he's warging with, with Bloodraven while this is all going on. Mira is yelling for them to... He's yelling for Bran to warg into Hodor oh, to help fight things off. And I think to escape. I mean, she seems set on, we're not going to get out of this by fighting. We need to escape. Uh, we have to watch a very difficult scene of Summer entering the fray and that, what, being killed the, moments later. The, I, I have a feeling about this. And it's, to kind of bring it back, it's my feeling about why Theon and Yara stole the ships. Um, I feel like they wrote the scene and they're like, oh shit, George told us that Summer dies here. Um, Let's have him jump into some zombies and just a pure CGI scene where he'll just get stabbed to death in eight seconds. Like, what the fuck is that? That was really depressing because he did what, you know, in my, my spare time I study a lot about wolf hunting habits. And, and it know. seems it seems likely to me that they would do more of a strafing bit than a jump into the middle of a pile. I mean, they're pack hunters. Um, it, and he takes out the first one that's approaching Bran that way. In a pretty badass way, yeah. That was pretty awesome. I was like, nice. Yeah. And then just jumps into the middle of a horde of them with weapons. It it was super confusing. And I'm not I'm not happy with the way the direwolves have been doing so far because the direwolves are supposed to be hugely BA and their deaths have been extremely inglorious thus far. In the books they straight up wreck shit. Yes. They're like straight up destructive in the books. And yeah, Grey Wind is a very valuable resource in in live battles for Rob. Yeah, he rides into battle against armored knights with big-ass spears and swords, and it has a very good kill-to-death ratio. Right. So, so yes, rest in peace, Summer. Not happy with the way they treated you. Um, yes. So, we, we, we only have... We have three wolves. I, I don't believe... I, Shaggy Dog can't be dead, but we only have two wolves that we know... 
Or at least one that we know for sure is alive. Yeah, she hasn't think... seen Nymeria either. Yeah, but she's got her roaming pack of death wolves. Yes. So, so yes, we're down to two now, Ghost and Nymeria. Um, which, again, very depressing. Uh, but let's let's get to the big the big thing. So they end up escaping. Um, we have a nice sacrifice by one of the children of the forest that seems entirely unnecessary. So you can oh take a moment to think about it. Um, Throw covering the, the escape, fucking grenade. Right. There's no need to to lay down there and and let them jump on you as the grenade explodes. Just just give them the grenade and keep moving. Yep. That's why they're grenades. Yep. <laughs> Um, but anyway, she manages to take out some more of them. The the trio of Bran, Mira, and Hodor manage to get outside the door. Bran is still warging into the past, and at this point, I believe, is also warged into Hodor, because Hodor had to be warged into in order to start pulling into the exit, correct? Yeah, he's warged in... He's in both the past um, and Hodor's mind, which I feel like took young Hodor's mind along with him and just fucking broke his brain in half. Right. So is is what we saw that Bran went to warg into Hodor and essentially warged into the Hodor of both past and present? Um, I, I do think that's what we saw. I think that the jury remains out on whether that act alone breaks someone's mind or whether it was just like, you know, you're 14 or whatever age Hodor was, and you're just working in the yard, which is basically what he was. He was basically just mowing his equivalent of the yard, you know, like yeah, doing right. stable work. And then all of a sudden you're like transported to like this snowy realm where you're being chased by like gigantic ice demons that then rip you to shreds as you as someone's screaming, hold the door. And then like that breaks your brain, you know, it would be pretty hard to handle. I would think the jury's still out on what exactly broke his, you know, what yes. broke his brain, but yeah. Um, so let's, let's get into that because I am, I mean, I think this is the central part of this episode and possibly of the entire story to come. I've been trying to figure out what happened here. Exactly. Uh, during my downtime at work, I spent most of my time just thinking through the sequence of events and what it might mean. So, we know from what we've seen, Bran has been able to warg back to a multitude of different times and locations. There haven't seemed to be any governing rules on when and where he can warg to. No. There, the books kind of made it feel like there was some kind of heart tree limitation, but that is for sure. I mean, he was at the Tower of Joy. He couldn't have been farther from a heart tree there, so he can go anywhere. Right. Now, if that's the case, and if he affected what happened to Hodor, that would suggest that he would be able to go to any point in time at any location in history and affect in some way. That is true. Um, I think it's pretty... Within the time travel like two universes uh it's it's pretty clear that game of thrones is uh whatever happened happened universe um hodor proves that you know which is um to say you know bran had not gone back in time yet to you know and like by doing so broke hodor's mind but his mind was still broken for bran's entire life because in hodor's like timeline 
that had already happened. Um, right. So, I hope... You'd hope Bran wasn't too stupid and would try to keep going back in time and changing things, because... <laughs> but I, I, I think I see where you're going with this, that Bran could be going back into time and, you know, by attempting to do things, he could end up basically leading us down this path, if that makes sense. Right, and and the primary thought is Bran has had a very shitty go of things so far. He, he fell job. out of a window when he was seven, was thrown from a window when he was seven, mm-hmm. uh, paralyzed from the waist mm-hmm. down, um, had his father killed, his mother and brother killed, had to trek through the north, through the land of always winter, and is living under a tree. Mm-hmm. If I were him, as a teenager, I would probably be at least tempted to try to change a piece of that fate. Mm-hmm. Would, um... That's interesting. I mean, the thing... The only thing we know Bran can do, though, is go back in time to break someone's brain, right? True. That's all we've seen him do. Now, the interesting part to me is that... I don't know that he knew what he was doing, because he was being... He heard Mira's voice saying, Warg into Hodor. Mm-hmm. And Warg into Hodor in the present, but... You didn't see him, like... You didn't see his eyes go Borg mode in the past scene. No. And Hodor's eyes didn't in the past scene either. Right. And then all you got was the... Voice from nowhere of Mira yelling, Hold the door, hold the door. Yeah, that's... Um... That's interesting. That, I mean... That kind of, to me, implies that maybe just, like, the duality of time there, like, broke Hodor's mind as opposed to him his past self physically experiencing that. Um. I can see that. So, so let's say then that Bran does not have the ability to go back and meddle with things, which we'll talk about another theory a little bit later, but let's say that he doesn't have that ability, because my concern is if that is that if he does you've suddenly created a power so much more powerful than Danny's three dragons that I'm kind of wondering, okay, what's the point of the rest of the people if Bran can alter history? Yeah, if he can go back and... If Bran can go back and meddle with things, why wouldn't he just... If he can phys, if he can actually successfully do it, why wouldn't he go back to some point, either at the beginning or before book one you know, and change something. Like, go provide evidence that Joffrey is a, is a son of incest, or... Right. You know, there, not nothing's coming to mind at the top of my head, but, you know, stop Ned from going. Like, there there, there are a variety of different things he can do, or at least would try. Right. Um, so let's, say, let's would... say that he's unable to do that. My next concern is, was this interaction predetermined? And if so, why should I care about the choices that any characters are making? Because if that's 
if it's predetermined, then Bran had to fall from the tower. Catelyn had to be in the room to stop the assassin with the knife. All of these things had to happen. When you say predetermined, do you mean a that that's a whatever happened happened thing? Is that is that what you're kind of getting at? Like, yes. So the, I, what the, I'm, what the I'm brand had is, to make it to the cave because Hodor had to have his mind broken. Right. And if that's the case, and there is this degree of predetermination, then why am I investing so much of my emotions in the choices, good or bad, that these characters make? I I do think we're in a whatever happened happened um universe. I I think that your point's interesting. I don't think that. I think Bran might think he can change the past more than he can. And I don't know what it'll be, but I could see maybe not anything that we've seen in the show, but one of the lead-up events, you know, maybe something after the Rebellion or before the Rebellion or kind of in that period, um, Bran goes back trying to fix something bad that happened and ends up causing it. Be interesting. But I, I do think we're in a whatever happened happened universe. I don't know if predetermines the right way to phrase it. Like I think that every character, I mean, we're in like a super philosophical discussion all of a sudden. Um, yes. <laughs> but I mean, I think that every character does have free will. But it, I mean, it 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 is kind of you know, um, it's a nuance and it's really semantics. Um, because saying every character is free will, but Bran just, you know, he did survive, so he got to break Hodor's brain is basically saying the exact same thing. Um, I don't know, though. So, so I, I'm, not, I'm not good with time travel, or time wrinkles, or time fudgery. Okay, so you don't like Doctor Who? No, I, what I mean is I'm not good at understanding it. <laughs> um, I don't like... Doctor Who's not that great of a show either. I know some people are going to be furious at me for saying that. <laughs> That's certainly possible. So, if if that had to happen, does that mean that somewhere the events of the upcoming fight against the others is also already determined? I mean, in the, like, whatever happens, happens universe, then Yes. But we just don't get to know what it is. And I don't think Bran can go forward in time. But there may be some dude looking back in time from 2,000 years in the future that knows the outcome of that fight. Uh, messing my mind. I don't believe that George... I mean, George has taken us to some pretty fucked up places. But I don't think that would happen. I, I agree. I agree. But like I said, I mean, it's it's... Yeah, let's let's not get too into it because then yeah, we're talking about the entire you know existence of man and free will and things like that. Yeah, that's like super fucked up. So so let's take it back to something a bit more immediate, which is how in the hell are Bran and Mira going to survive the next two to three minutes? There are. You have one theory that I will let you explain. Um, all that I will say is that. The creators of the show have sometimes just let things happen that don't make any sense. Fair enough. Okay, so I'll get to the explanation that I have, courtesy of a friend of ours. And the idea is 
there is no there is seemingly no way that Bran and Mira will be able to distance themselves enough from the army of whites and the white walkers behind them that they will be able to survive. We see that Bran has been marked by the Night's King, so it seems like he knows where he is with a little radar blip. Mira is certainly not Hodor in terms of being able to pull Bran along on a, on a sled. And it's really freaking cold outside. So even if the White Walkers don't come get them, it would be difficult to survive the trip back. The theory that my friend raised is one that addresses what we talked about prior to the season, and is that the Night's King might need the mark he put on Bran in order to cross the wall. And so the theory there is that the wall is said to have these spells woven into it to protect it against the others. And we see we have seen spells like that at work under the tree where Bran was studying. And under that tree, the whites that ran in just kind of exploded immediately. Now, before the season started, you and I discussed possibilities for how the White Walkers would get past the wall. It doesn't seem like they can go over the wall. No. It is difficult to go through the wall, because even when a castle is unmanned, the gates are closed, and they can't be opened from that side. No, and they can always... And even when a castle's manned, they can... They've talked about it before. They can, like, blow the tunnels. Right. And so the other alternative would be a secret passage. Now, if there was a secret passage, those sort of spells would prevent you from crossing that way if you were an other. However, if the Night's King knows of a way that he used to use to get in and out to see his other lady, he could let Bran go south of the wall, break the spells that are woven into the wall, and then follow through that passageway. I don't think he'd get his entire army through there, but I think you'd only need a couple others through the wall. You know, if he gets his five or we'll call it, you know, whatever number of others it is, you start killing a few and then you start building up and building up and building up. Right. Uh, the other two saviors that I thought of would be potentially Benjamin Stark. Uh, it, I don't know why I have some inkling in my brain that he's still alive because... Based on everything we've seen in this series, there's no way that he should be. But he was headed northwest from the wall when he was ranging, and that's where the signs of him disappeared. Um, and northwest is the supposed yeah. direction this tree would be in. That's a good point. Um, I, I could see him showing up. I. What would he have been doing for three years, though? I... I had like a theory that he would be, and we don't have book six yet, that he's going to be the prologue for book six mm. in the land of always winter and kind of see like the other, the other home base. But who knows that, that, that was my, that was my like book reader theory. That doesn't have anything based on the show, but I, I actually agree with you. He, I feel like he's going to show up just at some point. Yeah. They keep mentioning him too. And it seems like they wouldn't bother if he was just dead. No, he, he, he has been brought up, like, a couple times in the show in, like, ways that, you know, would are, are strange for, like, Ned's, for, like, John's uncle to get mentioned this, this much. Just Right. Yeah, a guy like we knew for all you. two episodes. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I think that we've uh, we've done a good job attempting to unwind time 
paradoxes and the <laughs> implications of someone with the ability to travel through time. And we've done a better job than I could hope to do again. Um, was there anything else out of this episode that you, you wanted to touch on? Um, Brianne's look, or Tormund's look at Brianne. Was, oh, yes. Thank uh, you, God. The the brightest ray of sunshine in this entire show. It, it's fucking incredible. I I really hope those two get together. Um, it's It would be the greatest uh, romance in the history of television. And, you know, I mean, it would be Ross and Rachel to, like, the 500th exponent. It would. I think that, you know, there are a lot of songs that we could we could place right right there to describe that relationship. Um, and I think that we'd probably have to create some new ones. It, I, I'm looking at the picture you have on the summary um, when he's just giving that just, like, smiling eye. That smile, is, man. It's just incredible. It really is. It really is. And I think, I think we were right last episode. Brienne just doesn't know how to respond, but I think she likes it. Oh yeah, she she's enjoying it. I think she thinks he might be fucking with her based on her history, right? Um, which will be funny when she confronts him mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's gonna be like, "Oh no, I'm not like messing with you. I just want to fuck you." Yeah, Tormund's <laughs> all in on Brienne, man. And he's gonna be like super blunt about it in the conversation. It's gonna be oh, it's gonna be incredible. That like in like a super depressing episode. That was just an incredible moment. It was. It was. It really, really gave me some hope for the future. All right, buddy. I think that we've done a good job this week. I think that we'll uh, we'll come back next week. You're headed to Portugal tomorrow. Is that correct? I am. My coworker is getting married, so I am flying to Portugal tomorrow. So I will not be watching the episode until Monday at probably about three p.m. Okay. Well, I will uh, go ahead and plan on potting again uh, sometime in the middle of next week. But until then, have a great trip. Uh, say hello to the wife for me. And uh, thanks for coming on again, buddy. Thank you very much. Have a good Memorial Day, John, and whoever's listening. All right. Have a good night, buddy. Mm